The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hey gang, how are you all doing on this toasty week? This is your host, Kevin. Uh, I'm coming at you today with kind of a impromptu, somewhat unplanned episode, but sometimes things work out just right and uh, you get a little bit of bonus content. So that's what we have today. Uh, I'm very excited to bring a conversation I recently had uh, with an author named Michael Faby who uh, wrote a book about how the U.S. Navy builds some of the world's largest aircraft carriers uh, in Virginia. Very interesting topic, and if you've uh, seen Top Gun this summer, um, you'll notice in this episode we dropped Top Gun a couple times. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. Definitely go do it. Uh, But uh, if you've seen it, you've seen aircraft carriers and, and kind of the the Navy and and jets are kind of at the forefront of people's imagination. So it's a timely topic to take a look at. What Michael Faby does is he looked into, you know, who builds these things and what's involved in it. And it's kind of an interesting thing that I didn't think a whole lot of beforehand. So very interesting conversation for you today. Um, Of course, as usual, if you want to pick up a copy of the book, I've got a link for you down in the description of this episode in your podcast app, so you can just link to that if you want to pick up a copy. Uh, And then if you would be so kind, if you enjoy Can't Make This Up, I would love for you to give us a review on whatever you listen to this on, Uh, subscribe on your podcast app or YouTube, Uh, and then if you want to join me on social media, I'm at CMTU History on pretty much all the social media apps. So, without further ado, uh, hope you guys have a good rest of the week. Uh, Normally I would tell you to go out for a walk or go for a jog and listen to this podcast. Uh, Today I'm going to tell you, stay inside where it's nice and cold, and just sit and listen to it. All right, here's my conversation with Michael Faby. Mike Faby, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, very glad to have you. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about um, um, some very large uh, military equipment today. Uh, but before we get started, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I understand that you have a long history of reporting uh, military-related issues. Yeah, I've been uh, doing this uh, this kind of reporter thing as a reporter, editor, um, photographer, that kind of thing for uh, more than three decades now. And uh, more than half that time has been spent covering the military and the last uh, decade or so specifically covering uh, Navy issues. All right. And so um, the book that you have that we're going to talk about today is called Heavy Metal, uh, cool name for a book, Uh, Heavy Metal, the Hard Days and Nights of the Shipyard Workers Who Build America's Supercarriers. What made you decide to tackle this topic of how our aircraft carriers get made? Uh, It goes back a long time to the, uh, essentially in the very beginning of when I was a reporter, uh, one of the first job interviews I had was for the local paper down Newport News, Virginia, called the Daily Press. And I went down for a job interview and 
I went down the day before and kind of get laid to lay and I start driving around and uh, past the shipyard and just saw the cityscape, if you will, of this huge, the, you know, the iconic carrier silhouette and just kind of stopped me in my tracks. I mean, I, I'd grown up in Philly, so I was used to seeing a large cityscape, but nothing like this. And I, I was just mesmerized by it. I just, it just really got my fascination going. Who does that? How do they do that? You know, and so I, I always want to find out. And then eventually, uh, years later, I went covering a yard for the Daily Press. And once I covered the yard and really found out how they did it, I just felt like it, it was a story that had to be tell, told what they do in there every day. So um, to give uh, listeners a little bit of perspective um, who may not live on the seaboard and may not have had the opportunity to see these things, you know, I know, you know, living in Ohio, I, we, you know, we don't have stuff like this. Um, exactly what is a supercarrier? How, how big of a vessel are we talking about? So, I mean, the, the carrier itself is just uh, enormous. I mean, you know, city, city blocks long. You know what I mean? I mean, mm -hmm. seriously, it's, if you were to take the Empire State Building, yep. sit down on the side, about the size of a carrier. That's crazy. You know, so, and, and on this ship, you know, on top, they launch and recover aircraft. So it's an airport, including like an aircraft tower, if you will, that's directing aircraft. And then it, on it are living 5,000 or so sailors, pilots, maintainers, and all that kind of thing. It's run by a couple of nuclear power plants. It's got hospital facilities. It's, it's, it's basically, it's a floating navy base too i mean it's just this massive you know as they call it uh at one point uh, almost a hundred thousand tons of diplomacy that's where rooms around the sea uh what, what, what you're describing this is more people than the town i grew up in <laughs> it is it's incredible thing to you know to to watch as it come together and, and to go out as they test it and operate and point like that it, that they can get something like this out and see and operate the way it does Okay, and, and specifically the, the, the place where these are produced is uh, Newport News. Mm -hmm. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about how this particular site came to be the shipyard to build such large craft? Uh, you go, go back to the kind of quote unquote very, very beginning, um, way back uh, a little bit after the uh, Civil War, a um, guy named... Uh, um hunting calls hunting was he was traveling around he was one of the uh, rail magnates um that one of the top four or five had put together the rail system across the u.s and he was looking for a kind of a rail terminus if you will for some coal exporting he wanted to do and while tra traveling uh, along the seaboard there he came across a site that he just thought was a fantastic place to put up a yard and a terminus for this coal terminal so he could do coal exports and then from there, they basically start to start to build ships commercially, and then also for the for the U.S. government, for the Navy. And that's you know, it's just it's a perfect place for it. The the weather there, as as he wrote about way back when, was kind of perfect. I mean, you had cold winters, but they weren't like cold all the time. The summers can be unbearable sometimes, but it was something you still work in. Uh, it was just and a place to have open to the sea. Um, easy access to the sea, easy access to raw materials, lots of labor around, 
that kind of thing. Uh, and so I, I'm assuming they've had to do some things um, infrastructure-wise to to the city and to the to the harbor area to make it capable of of this type of industry. Well, it's sort of almost a backwards kind of thing. So they built the city to basically serve the yard. Um, there was there was a yard, the terminus first, and then a yard, and then basically the company, you know, which became Newport New Shipbuilding, needed a city to support that. Needed you know people living in there to come and work in the yard. So they actually planners come down from the north, actually some from Philadelphia area um, where I grew up, and they came down and planned the yard uh, and the city in such a way they kind of grew up together and the city itself grew up around the yard. Um, but you know, through the years, they've expanded on that. They, they put in the wharves first and the piers and then the construction facilities around there, um, the cranes um, to a point where they have, as they call it, Big Blue, uh, the gantry crane, which is the biggest in the, in the hemisphere. Um, but the, it has grown up, the whole region essentially has grown up around that yard. So this is this is one of those towns where everybody you know, they 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 work at the shipyard. Everyone either works at the shipyard, has someone that found works at the shipyard, or knows someone works at the shipyard. Mm -hmm. uh, the the joke uh, down there is you got three uh, three jobs you can go to now. That's the shipyard, the military, Walmart. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean it, it it is something that it's something like um, well. If I can't find jobs somewhere else, there's always a yard. There, there is that kind of thing. There's also generations of folks who who work there, you know, whose grandfathers worked there or fathers. Now they work there. Uh, there's an awful lot of that at the yard as well. So, yeah, it's just you know, it's, it's something that's sort of always there, omnipresent. I mean, in, in at its biggest times, most uh, uh, prolific times, you got thirty thousand people working there. So it's a city within a city. What kind of jobs do people do to, to build these? What, what, what types of, of um, trades and skills and, and know-how are needed? Well, picture almost any kind of even uh, general construction site. You know, in many ways, a carrier is it's made up of like these compartments are like what you would see in a, um, in a skyscraper in some ways, you know, I mean, you know, of different circuits, of, you know, meant for the military. But so you've got welders, you've got electricians, um, you're going to have ship fitters, you know, the ones who move the big heavy pieces together. Uh, so you're going to have someone who operates, for example, Big Blue. So they operate gantry trains. Um, any kind of construction site, any kind of regular manufacturing plant, you're going to have to yard because they make so much of, you know, if you have your, that city within a city, well, it's building a floating city. So imagine what you have every day in and out of a regular city, the kind of workers you were having there, making yeah. that go every day. That's exactly what you have putting together the ship. Now, the, the supercarrier you look at in the book is the, is the USS John F. Kennedy, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Now, that's described as, as a next generation carrier. Right. So this is the... Uh, for going back to Vietnam, they have what they call the Nimitz class ships, named after the first ship. They're all named the first ship uh, of their class, and it's the USS Nimitz. Mm -hmm. And that was, I mean, that's been the carrier that, you know, anyone who sees a carrier now on TV at some hotspot around the world, that's what's going there. So okay. for this next 
So when I watch Top Gun this summer, that's what we're launching off. That's that's what you're going to watch on that one, right? Yes. Okay. Original Top Gun, you had some characters before Nimbus class, but now for 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 this Top Gun, that's what you're going to see is Nimbus class characters. Right. Um, so for for this one, they wanted a whole new launch recovery system, which uses electromagnetic um, parts instead of hydraulics. So it's a lot more maintainable, a lot more um, operational controllable, a lot more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're going to have some different ways to ship as could design and construct it to take advantage of the digital way of, of doing things nowadays, all that kind of thing. The first ship of that class was the Ford, which is now supposed to go on its first operational deployment at the end of, the, of this year. The Kennedy is the second of the first class. So Ford was, as they call it, CVN or carrier vessel nuclear, mm-hmm. 78, and the Kennedy is 79. And for this one, they want to basically iron out lots, shall we say, the wrinkles that they had on the Ford. There were all these, they had 23 new technologies on the Ford. Um, right now, the Navy will no longer do more than two or three new technologies because of how much um, challenging times they had putting the Ford together for that new technology. But as a result, with the Kennedy, you have a chance to kind of, as I said, around those wrinkles. So you're the second class ship following these brand new technologies that they think will be down, not perfect, certainly better than what they did on the Ford. Um, go out there. Uh, for example, they expect to be able to launch recover aircraft at almost like a third greater the rate than what they do now. So that means more aircraft in the air going back and forth. That means you can do more combat system, you know, work. Or if you have to do, you know, more humanitarian aid, same kind of thing. I mean, this will be a much more efficient ship, fewer sailors, it'll be less expensive to operate, that kind of thing. And also the air wing, as they call it, that's the aircraft that put on there, Oblomto's air wing. Mm-hmm. But one of the futures going to include things like more unmanned aircraft. And right now on the Nimbus class, the way the launch systems specially are made, they're not made to handle the unmanned aircraft. They could almost destroy the aircraft, even trying to launch them. Whereas with now with this Ford class and now the Kennedy being second ship of that, to be able to launch those aircraft and control those launching mechanisms in such a way you'd be able to do that. But the, the uh, John Kennedy will not be USS until it's commissioned. Um, only sailors and shipbuilders would do that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's not until it's completed. It, okay. Yeah. Yeah. What is, when it's, you know, actually the, the, the Navy, they actually put it into the fleet. Then it becomes a USS, as they call it, ship. Until then, it's just the, the, the John F. Kennedy, the carrier John F. Kennedy. Okay. Um, but I mean, like I said, you, Navy folks will know that. Shipbuilder folks will that, and no one else will. <laughs> it won't even register. So, uh, so how long of a of a time frame are we talking about building one of these things? They cut steel, as they call it, on the Kennedy back in 2011, and they they right now they're they're looking at maybe another year and a half, maybe two years before. You know, that ship is going to be kind of out and testing and stuff like that. So this is almost a 15-year project. So for, for yes, from like when you get that steel in there and start it and everything like that. Um, right now, the, the they have contracts for two at a time, and they expect to cut that enormously. I mean, maybe even by half, I mean, round figures, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So 
a lot of this had to do with uh, it didn't take that long necessarily build the ship. It took a lot of that time to buy for the Pentagon to buy the ship and resource the ship and Congress to approve the funds for the ship. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like they were like from, they were starting and they were going full throttle the whole time and in and all that kind of stuff. It, it really was a lot more of what goes on in DC is going to determine sometimes how long it actually takes for these ships getting together. So kind of with a lot of other, I guess, public works projects, you get these, these stops and starts and different administrations have different priorities. And mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, if you go back to, I was talking about all the new technology on the Ford, for example, mm-hmm. the original plan have been to to spread out all those different kinds of technologies across like three or four different ships. You know, a couple in the Nimitz class, it will last one in the Nimitz class, and then for the first three of the Ford class. But uh, that was what it was back on, you know, back uh, pre-Bush one. I mean, uh, you know, back two days actually Bush one. But then when Rumsfeld became defense secretary and we won the Cold War, they said, oh, well, you know, there's no great big challenging national power out there. So we can just go ahead and do a revolutionary change. So they decided to put all the technologies on one ship. And quite honestly, that's what created an awful lot of problems in getting the Ford together. So, yeah, you have all kinds of things that happen in D.C. or at the Pentagon that really do affect the program. So, you know, that's that's stuff where you have the politicians are making these decisions or working with the Pentagon. How, how does that affect just, you know, the men and women on the ground building this thing, the seal workers and the electricians and people like that? How, how, do, how do those battles affect them? So the day-to-day job of what they do, it, it really doesn't have that great of an impact. It's not as if they're going in there and saying, oh, I'm worried about what's going on in D.C. and everything like that. Um, they go in there, I mean, uh, they have just basically a handful of things in their mind, the most important of which, quite honestly, is doing the best job they can at every day. Um, I mean, there's so much riding on what they do, you know. I mean, sure, it's their shipyard pride, there's own pride in their work, but these are ships that are going out to war. If they don't do something right, I mean, a valve goes on it, you know, somewhere, that ship goes down, there's 5,000 sterile's lives start penalty on those kind of things. So they have to do that right. The, the second thing they want to make sure they do is they want to make sure they end their ship alive in one place. I mean, one piece. And then they also want to make sure that their workmates end their shifts alive in one piece. So day to day, that's what they worry about. Where it does have an impact, though, is in the size of the workforce. So if it's taken longer for Washington to decide when they want to really start building the carrier, you know, I so said they cut steel on the Kennedy in back in 2011, but they got the actual contract to build a ship in 2015. And that's when they could really put the pedal to the metal and start doing the work. Mm-hmm. Well, in between, you know, you, you only you have enough workers just to keep the, the job going, so to speak. So now you got to ramp up, you know? So right now, for example, Yard is looking to, to hire 5,000 workers because it has two new carriers that it went under, just went under contract. They're finish up the Kennedy, so it's another carrier there, and they have all these subs they're also building. So all this work is coming at one time and they have to ramp up work. You know, if their administration comes in, they decide, oh, we don't want to build all that. 
then they have to ramp down work and that's workers who leave and it's not as if they're sitting around waiting for it to be called again they now have a marketable skill they're going someplace else in the country that needs them so that's where you have the problems is is that kind of wave that the crest and trough of workers they need for these projects as, as Washington takes its time deciding when it's going to build things and when it isn't. And I imagine this this really puts some strain on the town itself. I don't know the strangest right word, partly because this is exactly sort of how, as I said, Newport News developed. <laughs> and they're, they're used to this in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, quite honestly, is that the shipyard pulls from awful large area. So you've got a lot of folks driving up from the Carolinas, for example. Um, a lot of folks drive, at the beginning of the book, uh, I talk about people who are driving down from what they call the Middle Peninsula, which is, you know, some of them, you know, that's going to be like a 45 minute drive, you know, and not 45 minutes waiting in traffic either. I mean, that's, you know, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fair distance, shall we say. So it, it's kind of dispersed throughout the city itself. Newport News is developed in a kind of a an odd way lately. Before everything was downtown, it was all around the yard. But now the yard itself, as has grown, has taken off a lot of the buildings just outside the gates, even. And the city has developed a call city center, if you will. It's actually actually a little bit farther north up the road from the yard now, and he's got all the kind of things you would normally have in that kind of modern city of shopping centers, eating places, um, you know, the Lowe's, the Home Depot's, all that stuff is sort of like a little bit north now or or, other parts of the city. So it's kind of developed more, I guess, along modern city. It's diversified a little bit, much more than it was uh, way back when. So I'm not sure there's as much of a strain as maybe it used to be, you know? Um, Having said that, I mean, if you're, if you're down there when that uh, 3.30 uh, um, whistle goes off, uh, you're not going to move anywhere fast, almost anywhere around the area. <laughs> and then, you know, do you want to share um, a little bit about some of the people that you you met in, in researching this and getting their stories? So that's what I think is the kind of the one thing that really will gravitate folks to, to read in this, at least I hope it will, is, is the stories of the people who work there. Because they, as I said, they, they go in there and it's not a nine to five job for most of them. I mean, of course, with we have 30,000 people together at one time, sometimes you're just going to have that nine to five mentality. But for most of them, it's not the case at all. They, they take a lot of pride in their work. Um, they take a lot of pride in the fact that you know, their daddies worked there, their granddaddies worked there. And, and especially, let me tell you, a lot of their grandmoms worked there, you know, and their moms worked there kind of thing. You know, so when they look up on the, the TV screen and they, they see a picture of a carrier in the news story saying they're going out to a new hotspot, believe me, their they're chest swelled a lot of pride for that. Um, but, you know, it, it's the way that the workers down there have actually kind of taken control of what they do. I mean, they're very, you know, as a very proactive in the yard of making sure they're learning all the new ways of shipbuilding or just manufacturing, a lot of digital stuff going on, but also just in the way that they're treated. Uh, the yard going back to when it was first started up until the uh, middle half of the next, last century or so, 
uh, could be best described almost um, by plant as a plantation system. At least that's the way workers who had worked there eons ago had told me about it. And it took a lot to get the union there. And one of the uh, people who I highlight in the book is a guy named Bill Bowser. Um, Bill, uh, his like many, his father worked in the yard. Um, and he went in there, quite honestly, as a disciple of Malcolm X. He was a young black man who was bound to determine, and then we went to the yard in the 60s, sort of bring that whole, uh, as he even said, the black power to, to, to the white people in the yard. And that's what he had planned to do. But once he got in the yard and started working around everybody, there is a sense of family there. I mean, people meet their fall, love, get married, that kind of thing. There's this amazing sense of overarching family, even with the different kinds of partisanship views you see or religious views that you'll find in any large area like that. Still, there's a sense of family. As a sense of family, he, he told me he realized that, you know, it's not that divisive element I thought it was. The real fight here is us as a working class against folks who have, he has seen in his mind, take advantage of that working class. And so they worked really hard to bring the union. And he worked with other work workers, especially a guy named Russ Axum, and went around the whole area to places, quite honestly, that no one was welcome. I mean, that was back in the day, back in the 60s and, and 70s and everything, where, you know, if you talk about unionism, you might as well talk about communism. And they just worked at it and they had to fight not only locally. I mean, this was a fight that was carried out in churches, even from the pulpit. This was a fight that was carried out in barber shops, you know, and then it was a fight that was carried out in the streets. I mean, built one time had to be taken with an ambulance because his head got cracked open as you had police coming in and fights going on both sides. And then it even went to the courts and up to the highest courts and they still fought and got that union in there. And that to me was just something that showed that what could happen when everyone put their kind of, you know, more physical uh, separating instincts aside and came together. Um, so that was one of the things, but also, I mean, just the, the way that the folks would go in there and learn their trades. And when he described the way, for example, they had to, you know, one guy, Jordan Patterson, had to hang up upside down, almost like Batman, he said, in order to paint a tight spot. You know, he had to crawl him backwards to a place that, you know, was almost like a metal coffin. He was encased so close just to get and paint a tight spot. You know, you have these workers up there uh -huh. who have to basically, you know, climb up, you know, you know several like stories high, like skyscraper level. And they'd be up there hanging off, you know, to try to weld or, or try to get a, you know, a, a part in just right, you know. And then on top of that, the way they'd have to go in and just make sure that everything lined up just right. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of studs, for example, have to be lined up just right. And just to make sure that they do that painstaking day after day after day. And you can see how someone would get bored by doing that. And to know that, you know, if they get bored, if they just for a second don't focus on what they're doing, a spark could go out, catch fire, and then, you know, a fire on any ship, especially mm -hmm. one that's under construction, could just be the end of, I mean, people's lives. 
you know, and at several courses in the ship, um, well, not on this ship, but in the shipyard during the course I was writing. So people did lose their lives because of accidents and things like that. I mean, it's just that, that kind of thing, that kind of thing. Like I have a job to do. I'm going down. Someone's going out into a combat zone, really on the front lines. And it's just almost the way they just do it, you know? Um, so that was one of the things that really got me. And then the guy who was in charge and responsible for all this going on was a guy named Mike Butler. And most selfless guy I'd ever seen in there. He, he, in going through the manuscript of the book, he demanded some parts be changed because he thought too much focus was on him. And yet he was responsible for bringing all of this together, you know, creating, you know, something to have all this chaos, seemingly chaotic stuff that was going on. Um, and the way he ran her, it was just amazing. Uh, and as you spoke with these people, uh, did you, did you get a sense that they kind of feel that they're contributing to the nation? I mean, they really have a patriotic sense of what they're doing um, that I have not seen in other, you know, waterfront that I've covered for other type of businesses or another plants that I've covered. I mean, there's just this real sense of what they do makes a difference, you know, to not only to the nation, um, but also, you know, for the sellers. And it's very interesting that, you know, a carrier, as it comes together, parts ship get done before the parts do. And actually, a lot of those parts will be, as they say, turned over to the Navy. And so you have actually the Navy plank owners, sailors, plank owners are the first sailors signed to the ship. And they're coming on and actually working on the ship as our parts of the ship are being built. So the sailors and steel workers actually kind of get to know each other. And there's a sense of, of brotherhood and sisterhood of, of what they're doing together. You know, the, the steel workers are bringing the spine of the ship and the sailors are bringing the spirit of the ship and they're bringing it all together. And so you have a sense of really like, you know, there weren't a different kind of uniform, but it's a almost like a national uniform that many of them, most of them feel that they are wearing themselves. As I said, they, they know that, you know, this ship is meant to go into combat. And even if it's not in combat, it's daily operations where you have nuclear power plants on board, aircraft taken on and off, jet fuel all over the place. Even in that environment, anything that is substandard, that isn't quite right could put thousands of American sailors' lives in jeopardy. And they honestly don't want to do that. They really don't. I've had, when I was at Daily Press, I had shipyard workers who would come to me about things they thought that weren't being done quite right and putting their jobs at risk and tell me this, but they would come and say, because we're scared for the sailors, you know? So that's, it's a real, um, deep down baked in kind of feeling that they have about this, you know, it, and I'll tell you, it really kind of took hold or took greater hold during COVID. When COVID hit and rest of the nation, almost or large parts of the rest of the nation had to shut down, Newport New Shipbuilding did not. They couldn't shut down. They had a schedule to keep because they had carriers to get out, they had submarines to get out. So they can't just shut down. So the work on Kennedy kept on. And they were deemed with, as they said, essential workers. That's what the government said they were, essential workers. And you could see the pride that they had when they were told that. 
the union put it out in the newsletter and everything else. They were essential workers. And I'll tell you, when they came back to do contract negotiations at them last year, don't think for a second they let the company forget that they were deemed essential workers. And um, the, the big call sign was essential pay for essential work. Or mm -hmm. essential workers demand essential pay. So there is that very, very strong sense of that. I mean, you know, hey, you know, there's an awful lot more Fords on the road than there are cars in the ocean, you know, but that Ford isn't something you're going to see on a TV screen going out to, you know, go out to somewhere in, in the Arabian Gulf or someplace that that or going to South China Sea, you know, and something someplace like that, carrying the American flag and American sailors to, you know, to, to basically show that American presence. Well, no, these, these are the, the, key instrument of of the american military it's uh as i said earlier it's, it's a hundred thousand tons of diplomacy <laughs> yeah you know nothing says we're here like that silhouette of a carrier all right well uh mike this is this is such a cool idea you know it's something that i i think a lot of people if they they you know if they went and saw top gun and they they see it or if they see an aircraft carrier on the news you know, they kind of take it for granted, and and I and and I really like that you uh, didn't take it for granted, and you got curious about how do you make one of those, who makes one of those. Uh, so I think this is a really cool idea for for a deep dive into this industry. So if someone is interested in this topic and wants to learn a little bit more, uh, where can they go to learn more about your book or learn more about your work? Well, so. Um... I mean, the easiest one to remember uh, is my name is Michael Fabey, uh, Michael and F-A-B-E-Y, Fabey.com. And it, the carrier stuff is listed there. Uh, the book's put out by HarperCollins. It's on your usual you know, online shopping places like Amazon and, and everything like that. It's in all the bookstores. Um, I think that's the, the easiest thing to do. And, and, and your note of Top Gun, I'll say this, that uh, in this book, you'll find the real Top Guns. I mean, the actual folks who used to take off of carriers who were involved in designing and building of these, of these aircraft and then testing and operating them. But then you also learn a lot about the top guns on the waterfront. And that's the guys who make all that possible, the guys and the women who do. Mm -hmm. And uh, their stories are, are absolutely amazing. Um, anyone who's, who's ever punched a clock or anything will, will relate to, you know, what it's like to, to, you know, we have a half hour for lunch, but imagine having only a half hour for lunch when you're six stories down in, in a carrier uh, welding some steel together. All right. Well, uh, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to us today. Thank you. Very much appreciate it.